Uh, my name is Peter. I'm the, I'm the discipleship pastor here at uh, Chapel Hill, and uh, Paul is, is, is taking the, this Sunday off, so I'm, I'm in, the, in the pulpit here, and uh, I, I just want to thank Paul for, for leading us through this last year in uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. I think it was an incredible uh, series for us as a church. I love going verse by verse. You know, if, if you agree with that, clap your hands. Does you agree with that sort of thing? I, I love it. I love it. And what I love is that the Sermon on the Mount is this old text that just comes to life again when you just go through it one at a time. So you won't need Bibles this morning. Ushers are kind of waiting back there. You don't need need them this morning. Um, But what I want to do is, this is going to be kind of a weird sermon. It's going to be a little weird. It may, this may just go down in a ball of flames, frankly, honestly. Um, And and here's the thing. Matthew 7 is the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's, and, and Paul said, Hey, do you want to preach on Memorial Day weekend? I'm like, sure. So I, I go, let's go. What's, what's next after, you know, the, the, the last part that Paul just preached on. And it's Matthew chapter seven, verse 28 and 29, which says this, that, uh, the, 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 after he was done speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he's one, he, because Jesus spoke with authority and not as the scribes did. I was trying to memorize this week, so uh, you, I probably didn't get it all right. But, but, you, but that's, that's the text I have for today. The crowds heard this and they were amazed because Jesus spoke with authority, not like the scribes did. So there was all sorts of directions I could take this. I mean, we could talk about the authority of Christ, that he is God, created all things, therefore he has authority. I mean, just by that alone, we could go into that, and that would be incredible. But where I was led was in a kind of different direction. I wanted to talk about scribes. See, here's the thing. We aren't God, so we're never going to have the authority that Christ has in his teaching. The way Christ taught was that he would just say it. He would just say a truth, and it was true. He didn't have to stand on the shoulders of giants like many of us do when we teach, like I have to. He didn't have to go study under a certain scholar. He spoke truth. Christ had a unique wisdom that we will never have. So we will not necessarily relate to Christ in the way that he spoke, but we'll relate more to the scribes. Because here's how the scribes taught. They would say, well, this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this, and therefore, here's the main point. Based on their authority, this is true. They would leverage the authority of other teachers, other scholars, other works, and then that's how they'd make their point. Christ didn't have to do that. In fact, he would say things like, well, you've heard it said, but I say... Period. He spoke with authority. But the scribes couldn't do that, could they? And neither can we. So, I don't take this verse as a knock to the scribes. I think we're, we're like the scribes. We're like these, these teachers of the law. And the scribes, is, it, the, the, the reference here is to somebody who knows the technical side of the text. Often they would even write part, they would be, they would be the writers that actually, you know, scribe, write, write down what's being taught. These were very, very smart individuals. They knew the text. So my question from this text is this, how are we to be good scribes? How are we to be good teachers of the word? How can we be 
good interpreters of the world. Because let's be honest, every time we open the word, we're interpreting what it says. You follow? Do you agree? Every time we open it, we have to interpret the word. And that, that's, that's just the life of a Christian, the life of a Bible study student. So how do we become really good scribes and really good teachers of the word? This is really important today because we have verses like this. Do not, uh, does, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? First Corinthians chapter 11. This is really important. How are we going to interpret this verse? And if you're new here, our pastor has long hair, so that's, we suddenly have a crisis and there'll be a meeting after church. No, no. Actually, actually, this is really important. And I'm really concerned. And my hope is that our church would continue to grow and grow and grow in our capability to study the word. Because this is really important. And the world is scratching its head going, I don't understand. I don't understand. Let me prove it. Here's just one example of that. Here's something that's right out of the paper this week. Um, uh, There's a Gallup poll that that shows that uh, 28% of Americans believe that the Bible is literally true and should be taken as the literal truth. Are you one of those? Yes. Okay, I made a little list (laughs) of the things... Things that are in the Bible that if we took it literally true. Uh, slaves must submit themselves to their masters no matter how harsh. Right, at, right off the bat, we're, we're believing in slavery. Well, <laughs> this, was a, this was a pretty spirited debate in the United States in the 19th century. And actually, what, what occurred then, the slavery of, of ancient Rome, which Paul was writing about, was a very different kind of slavery. It wasn't chattel slavery. It was usually, <laughs> it was usually, it was usually a form. It was come usually on. a form of indentured servitude. Oh, come the on! The fact is, Bill, the anti-slavery movement. Spartacus, came, come the, on, babe. We've the, all seen the movie. Bill, Sla- there's no good slavery. See, no, the, I didn't say it was good. I'm not advocating it as a labor. But system. the Bible I'm does. Saying it was totally the Bible different. is okay with slavery. No, no, it doesn't. Oh, come and the on, anti-slavery man. movement in the United all States. Right came out okay. of the churches. It was a product of the Second Great Awakening. If a woman has, and I talk about that in my book. If a woman has sex before she's married, the men of the city must stone her to death. <laughs> All right. What? I... I <laughs> and Bill... Let's hear the good version of that. Bill, what, what did Jesus say when he was presented with the adulteress? And the people who wanted to stone her to death cited that verse. He got down on his knees and he wrote in the dirt, We believe the sins of all those present. And he said, Let who, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And but, they walked away but if shame. But if the Bible's a... That's in the Bible. If the Bible's a perfect book written by a perfect guy, why is this part in there? If a woman has sex before she's married, why did Jesus need to come along to correct his dad? I don't, I don't get it. Be, because, because humankind is fallen and is sinful, and we all right. fall short of the glory of God. So yeah. 400 years that, but if, but 400 saying, years after the Abrahamic covenant, but I'm asking, the law was presented. 
But I'm asking you about the Bible. The, the, yeah. the, it said that the people think the Bible should be literally taken true. And these are the literal words in the Bible from God. Yeah. I mean, But I, Bill, you're ignoring the New Testament. Not one of those verses occurs in the New Testament. You're ignoring the New Covenant. So the Old Which, Testament, the Jew God, he's bad. <laughs> I didn't say that. He's... Bill. I, I, but he said this. Bill. He said this. Thing. Bill. Jesus he was a Jew. A, he said this. I'm, yeah. I'm quoting. You're, now. you're I'm, being. You're being very selective. So you're also. But I should. But see, that's the thing. If it's perfect, but, why? Why? But, what do you mean selective? Look at all of it. Should be perfect. But look at. All, look shouldn't at, all of it be perfect? Look at my point. You, you could just as easily. You could just as easily cite the dietary laws in the Old Testament, which today's observant Jews still observe. But again, if you go to the New Testament, there's a new covenant that demonstrates that's not the path to ultimate salvation. I, 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 right. Can I'm, I just make the point, you're not going to get to heaven by observing do's and don'ts and rules. You're going to get to heaven by a personal relationship with God through His Son. I, I, that's how you get to heaven. Okay, I just didn't know that that's how it worked. That, that Jesus had to come along to say to him, Dad... Is that a surprising interview to you? No, it's not to me. I, I'm hearing that a lot, actually. I see interviews like that and that sort of rhetoric a lot. Bill doesn't really want to know, does he? And, and, and he's, he's masterful at what he's doing. If you noticed, he's piling on. When Ralph is trying to just get some traction here, he piles on another thing and another thing and adds another thing to him. And therefore, there isn't really a discussion here. It's just more of trying to make Ralph, who I think actually does a decent job in this interview, uh, make him look stupid is really the point. And that's happening a lot. There's not really an interest here. And here's the thing. Christians, he starts off right at the bat talking about... Um, He starts to say, you know, talking about taking the Bible literal, and we'll talk about that in a second. But here's the thing. I want us to see how important it is that we know the Word. How important it is that we understand things like the Old Testament, the New Testament. That we understand uh, some of the things that Bill brought up. Like, notice what he said. Isn't it supposed to be perfect isn't the text supposed to be literally perfect? He's getting this from somewhere. How do we address this? Now, I don't want to bring stuff like this up and then talk about how we can, you know, debate people like this. I'm actually more worried about something else. I'm worried about Christians who hear interviews like that and their doubt starts to raise. That, that's really what I'm worried about. I'm, I'm not here to, to talk about how you can become a good debater. I'm, I want to equip you so that when you hear things like this, you can go, okay, let's go track this down. Let's go check this out. Let's, let's study this. That is really more my concern. Are we equipped to be able to go and find out the truth? When we hear things like this, we, we live in a soundbite world. We're not getting full pictures of the stories. We're getting clips. How do we go find out the truth? How do we do that in-depth study? So let's go. We're going to do a little bit of that today. I'm not going to cover everything. We don't have time for that, but we're going to go a little bit because I wanted to show you what 
here's some tools. Here's some things that you can do to kind of unpack this stuff. So let me just show a brief part of the, the clip again, and I want to address what he says. So go ahead and show that second uh, clip. Here. Here's something that's right out of the paper this week. Um, uh, there's a Gallup poll that, that shows that uh, 28% of Americans believe that the Bible is literally true and should be taken as the literal truth. Are you one of those? Yes. Okay. I mean, That's in the Bible. If the Bible's a perfect book written by a perfect guy, why is this part in there? Mark, why did Jesus need to come along to correct his dad? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. Okay. So here, Bill's making this assumption about how to literally read the Bible. But the fact of the matter is, nobody including Christians who say, I take the Bible literally, nobody reads the Bible that way, the way that Bill thinks that we do. Bill takes a verse, and he doesn't care about the historical context. He doesn't care about who wrote it or when or where it shows up in the Bible. He just thinks if you just take, what Christians believe is if you just take a verse, that you believe the literal words of that verse on its own. That's what he thinks Christians believe. So he pulls up a verse and goes, what's up with this verse? And Ralph is trying, in the limited time he has, to say, well, look, you need to consider what's going on here. You need to consider where this verse is in Scripture. What is happening around it. You need to consider who wrote it. What's the historical context behind it. What is the literary genre? Where, what type of writing is this? And what is the intention of the author? What's the purpose of writing this? Bill doesn't care about any of that. He just thinks, if you just take it literally true, I should just be able to pull it out and it should stand on its own. That's not the case. The Bible is a rich narrative full of human history, full of context, full of, full of all sorts of things that we need to look at before we can actually get to the truth. So, I think nobody takes the Bible literally like Bill thinks. If we took it literally like Bill thinks, everyone in here would have their eyes gouged out and their hands cut off. Right? Because the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you sin, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If we took it literally like Bill thinks we do, we would all be blind if we were good Christians. And we'd all be missing our hands. Right? But we all know that Jesus spoke with this rhetorical tool called hyperbole, which by the way, hyperbole is not in the Bible anywhere. This is something we understand and know because we study the text. So I think a better word other than literally, taken literally, is literately. Literally. Study the Bible literally. Understand the literature you're dealing with when you look at a text. Understand the history, understand the context, understand the writer, understand the purpose. This is, this is what we refer to as exegesis, where we exegete the text. It means that we study what did it mean there and then and what is going on. Now, once we discover what the text means, once we discover... What it, what it meant, what happened once we do that work, then we can move into what's called hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics, it's, okay, it's a big word. Now, don't glaze over. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hermeneutics is basically this. What does it mean here and now? What does it mean now? 
So we, before we actually get to here now, we've got to study what did it mean there and then, what did it mean for the writer, what did it mean for the audience, and then once we get that down, then we can start going, okay, what does this mean for us today? But if we don't do that work first, we can't do this accurately. Because any text, any text cannot go beyond what the original author meant by it. We need to understand what it meant first before we get to here. That is what a good Bible teacher does. And Bill doesn't care about, care about that. He finds a Bible verse. If it doesn't make sense, he holds it up and goes, what about this one? He doesn't care about the history. He just tosses the whole thing out. So when someone asks you this, do you take the Bible literally? Respond, oh, I take it way more serious than that. I take it way more serious than that. So let's look at the next thing that, that Bill says. Let's watch the, this next piece. <clears throat> Okay, I made a little list <laughs> of the things, things that are in the Bible that if we took it literally true. Uh, slaves must submit themselves to their masters no matter how harsh. Right, right off the bat, we're, we're believing in slavery. Okay, so slavery, this is something that, that uh, many critics of the Bible, skeptics of the Bible, love to bring up. They love to say, how can you trust this book? How can you say it's a moral book when it... It seems when it endorses slavery pretty quickly. Now, Ralph tries to point Bill towards history here, but Bill won't have it. He, he laughs at it. But that's exactly where we need to head. And as, as good Bible teachers exegeting the text, we've got to understand the history surrounding the text. So if you get a few key tools in your arsenal, you can understand what's going on at the time in this text. You need a good Bible dictionary. You need some good Bible commentaries that can help you understand the history behind the text. I recommend the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary. This is a great tool for you guys. For you, guys. It, you can basically look up any topic and it'll get you started. If you have an issue with slavery, pull up slavery. You can take a look at it. It's 20 bucks on Kindle. If you, if you do Kindles, it's, it's a giant book. If you get it, it's like this huge hardcover. But I love it on Kindle because I can quickly search it. But but if I look up slavery here, it says this. Slave, slavery, this is a dictionary. Um, while Hebrew, abed, and Greek, doulos, are very common. So these are the words that are used. Ebed and doulos are very common words in the Bible. These are usually rendered servants in the King James Bible, which uses the English term slave only twice. And not using, doesn't use slavery at all. And then it goes and talks about the new text, what, what the NIV and others use when it refers to slavery. Um, they frequently use these English words uh, if the context indicates. So there's, a, there's different contexts where you would use this word and how you would reference it. Now, among the Hebrews, slaves could be acquired in a number of ways. As prisoners of war, by purchase, by accepting a, a person in lieu of debt, by, by birth from slaves already possessed, by arrest. Um, uh, by rest of the thief had nothing to pay for an object stolen, and by the voluntary decision of the person wanting to be a slave. Slaves among the Hebrews, check this out, listen here. Slaves among the Hebrews were more kindly treated than slaves among other nations. Now, since the Mosaic law lays, laid down rules governing their treatments, they could gain their freedom in another number of ways. Slavery continued in the New Testament times, but the love of Christ seemed to militate against its continued existence. So, my example here is, you could get a Bible dictionary, look this up, and it kind of gets you started in this topic from a biblical perspective. And then from there, you can launch into other texts that are listed here and begin to understand what is going on with slavery. So, we discover that the Bible has a rich history with slavery. 
It's starting with the fact that, that, that God, even God's chosen people were in slavery. And the dictionary points out here that, that Jews, the Hebrews, actually treated slaves better than other nations. And they were governed by the law of Moses, and they even had a path to freedom. Also, we, we see here that the, the, the dictionary says that, that in the New Testament, there's actually this undermining, or it says this militating against, against slavery. And, and what it's referring to is in Ephesians 6, it says this, Master, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and, there, and there's no partiality with him. What's happening here is that Paul is reminding the masters of slaves something really, really important and kind of strategic. He's saying this. God doesn't see you any differently than your slaves. God doesn't see you any differently than your slaves. There's no partiality here with God. The same master that you have, they have. That's God. And he doesn't see you any different. There's no partiality. What would that do to a master if they believe that with their slave? Would it start to bring things to equal ground. The dictionary also points out in Philemon that Paul tells a slave owner to consider your slave your brother. If you started to consider your slave your brother, would that not bring slavery and slaves on equal ground with you as a master? So, to Bill's point, Paul doesn't call out slavery as evil, but just because he doesn't say that doesn't mean that Paul endorses slavery based on what we just read. And that, and it doesn't even point out that God endorses slavery. No, in fact, the, the, the text shows us that Paul's, Paul's teaching was actually undermining the whole thing, subversively. I think it's actually brilliant what he's trying to do here. And if masters started to see their slaves as brothers, what would happen? And if masters started to see themselves on equal ground with God, with their slaves, what would happen? Slavery would begin to unravel. But this not, might not be satisfying you, because you're like, well, slavery is still in the Bible. You just read portions of the Old Testament where it was used among the Jews. So, okay. There's, a, there's another resource I want to point you to. And this is, again, trying to equip you with tools you can use. Um, many of you might know about it. This is called a, a, the Blue Letter Bible, blueletterbible.org. Um, it's, there's also an app for it. So if you have a, a smartphone, look up Blue Letter Bible. It's a really cool app, because with this app and with this site... You can actually see the original Greek. You can see the original Hebrew of a text. You can access commentaries, sermons, dictionaries about any passage. And this site specifically, for the purposes right now, has an encyclopedia called the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. And it's got this great passage on the history of slavery. Follow me. It says this. Bear with me here. The treatment of slaves was improving. In part because masters came to realize that contented slaves worked better. So the culture was already starting to move in the right direction. And though it wasn't legal, although people weren't legally recognized as persons, slaves started to acquire some rights. And in AD 20, which is about 50 years roughly or so before Paul writes this about slavery, in AD 20, the Roman Senate decreed that slaves accused of crimes were to be tried in the same manner as free men. 
And in some cases, their wills were recognized as valid. That they, what they wanted was valid. And they were often permitted to own property. Slaves were often better off than free men because they, free people, people who weren't slaves, because they were assured food and clothing and shelter, while poor free men often slept in the streets or in cheap housing. Free men had no job security and could lose their livelihood in times of economic duress. Many slaves ate and dressed as well as freemen. Slaves could be doctors, musicians, teachers, artists, librarians, and accountants. It was not uncommon for a Roman to train a slave at his own trade. They had opportunities for education and training in almost all disciplines. Bill wouldn't have any of that. He just laughed at it. But are we so arrogant to think that 2,000 years later, we would know better what was going on than the, actual, the, the Christians living at that, that, that time of what to do and what to say? How arrogant to look back and go, why didn't you say it this way? We're so far removed from what was happening in the culture. And this tells us that there was actually good things happening. And then when you consider what Paul says in the text where he says, your slave is your brother. God is the same as you. When you start to consider that, you start to see there's some brilliance behind what Paul's doing here. Let me, let me go even further. This is, this is exciting. Because if you look at uh, a commentary, which is another great tool for study. John MacArthur writes this about Ephesians 6. Listen to this. He says this. It is significant that in the New Testament, nobody attacks slavery directly. He says that. But get, follow this. He, kind of, he goes, Whoa. Had, had Jesus and the apostles done so, had they attacked slavery, the results would have been chaos. Think about it. Any slave insurrection would have been brutally crushed, and the slaves would have been killed, massacred. Right? If Jesus started a big slave insurrection, they would just probably get killed. And the gospel would have been swallowed up by this message of social reform. Further, right relationships between slaves and masters made it a workable social institution, if not an ideal one. So, Christianity, however, sowed the seeds of the destruction of slavery. It would be destroyed, be destroyed not by social upheaval, but by changed hearts. By changed hearts. And then he goes on to talk about in Philemon how Paul says to this, this master, says, consider Onesimus your brother. What would that do? It would unravel slavery. You got to get yourself a good Bible dictionary. You got to get your, you, you, take your Bible off the shelf, read it, get a good Bible dictionary, bookmark the blue letter Bible, download it, and get yourself some good Bible commentaries. Don't just listen to interviews like this and go, huh, man, Bill seemed to win that one. You're missing so, so, so much. John MacArthur's got some great commentaries. I love, there's a, there's a commentary series called uh, For Everyone by, by Tom Wright or N.T. Wright, which I love. Um, check that out. These are, it's small. It's really easy to read. And uh, it's, it's a great little companion to the Bible. N.T. Wright's the, the guy's name. Um, these are great, there's, there's, there's great tools available to you, free, on like blueletterbible.org, blue to help you study difficult texts. Um, I also went on to our website, chapelchurch.com, and I posted under the resources tab some recommended uh, commentaries per each individual Bible in, the, in um, each individual book of the Bible. <clears throat> so check that out. Okay, next. Oh, okay. I don't have time to go into too depth here. I wish I did, but I'm just going to touch on a couple things here. Bill Maher 
brings up the issue about the Old Testament laws and stoning the adulterous woman. So let me just say, this is very difficult to explain, and I'm gonna, but I'm going to make a few points. So as a Christian, as a Christian, it's really important that we need to understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. If you are unclear about the Old Testament and what it's all about, and the New Testament and what it's all about, you need, you need clarity on that. Because you're going to hear arguments like this all the time and just, it's going to mess with you. You need to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and what is happening. Now, I would recommend a book for you because I don't have time to go into it. It's a rich thing. This, is, this, this takes time. It takes investment effort. There's a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Fantastic book on how to read the Bible. And there's a section here on the law which they talk about. So let me give you a, a few previews here. So first of all, the Old Testament is a very dark time. It's a very dark time in human history. There's, it's very barbaric. If you look at some of the old laws, like Hammurabi's Code, these old, these old laws, they're barbaric. They're, there's classism, there's, there's sexism, there's racism, there's all sorts of isms in these old laws. And when you study... The Old Testament laws, you find that God is taking this mess, this hairball of a culture, and he's inserting progressive laws. He's moving culture forward. Now, we look back, and we look at those laws that God made, and we go, oh my gosh, how barbaric is that? How, how can you find any morality in that? But if you look back and you look at the actual culture that that law is inserted in, inserted in it's moving culture forward. It's a lot like when Paul says the slave's your brother. You and your slave are the same. He's moving culture forward. But we can't really see this unless we actually look at the history. We look at what's going on. Now, there's another thing that's going on here too. In the Old Testament, God's not just interested in moving culture along. But he's interested in showing the world what he's like. Now you might say, well, this, that law isn't doing him so much so good there. It's, it's a, but in reality, what he's doing is he's creating a people, Israelites, the chosen people, to represent him in this dark culture. And so he raises the standard pretty high. You might say you should have gone higher given our standards today. But this is 4,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. How arrogant for us to look back and go, well, it should have been this. He's raising the standard. He's creating a chosen people to stand out, to be set apart from the culture, to show his glory and who he is to the rest of the world. Now, the Bill Mars of the world are not interested in seeing that. But if you take some time to study, you will see that what's going on. The other thing is this. The Old Testament is not our testament. It's not our testament. It represents a previous covenant that God has with Israel. And so we should assume that none of the laws that are, bind, are binding on us, because, unless they were renewed in, our, in the New Testament. And last thing, and this is in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will often take the Old Testament laws further, doesn't he? He takes this law about committing adultery, and he says, if you even, if you Think about it. 
If you are committing adultery in your heart, he takes it even farther than the actual act. He says, in John 7, when he talks about the woman who committed adultery and he draws in the sand and he says, he says, let he, without sin, let, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. What he's doing is he's taking it beyond the act and he's taking it further to the real intended mark. To where God wants to bring us. But there is a process. There is a progression. And the skeptics don't like it. We need to know how to study our Bible like this. So that when people like Bill make statements like that. Laugh. Ridicule. And often make things to get the crowd clapping. But they they don't rock us. If something doesn't make sense. If we have some doubt rises up in us. Our response is to be like good scribes, to go into the text, not run away from it, to go into the history. We need to know how to do good exegesis and then good hermeneutics. We need to understand what the text was meant by the original author. What's the purpose of it? Why did they write it? What's the historical context behind the passage? What's the literary genre? Who was the text written for and when? And what was going on at the time? Because here's the deal. If we can't accurately understand the text, we, we, cannot understand, we can't really understand the meaning of the text until we understand what it meant at that time. we got to be careful not to prejudge a text before we do the work. And we got to be careful not to apply the meaning of a text that the author didn't intend. I, I see that a lot in the church. There's a tendency in the church to extract meaning from texts that wasn't intended to be there. We need to ask, what did it mean there and then? And then, only then, after we've done that work, then ask, what does it mean now? What does it mean now? Some of you might be asking, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Doesn't the Holy Spirit illuminate the text for us? Yes, he does. Of course he does. I love it when that happens. When you open the Bible and it lays up before you and, and God speaks to you through that. But that's not the only way he does it. That does happen, and praise God when it does happen. But I don't know about you, but it doesn't happen for me every time. Sometimes I find out more about who God is when I start to dig in to the history, when I start to dig in to the context around it. That's when I really can see even clear, clear who God is. And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm, I'm entering into, into Narnia or something, or I'm entering into this new world, and I'm starting to see things I didn't see before. So now you have the basic idea, really basic idea of what it's required to understand the text. You have a few tools I've given you, but now I want to give you an opportunity to actually do it. Um, You're probably not going to be able to do a lot too much based on the sermon. You can get some books that I referenced. I've left a lot of things in the cutting room floor, but here's the opportunity. I set up a blog. This is a bit of an experiment. A blog called exegesis2015.wordpress.com. Here's the experiment. From today until the end of the month of June, we're going to exegete the book of 1 Corinthians. Okay? So there's going to be a one post a week. It's going to require all you. It's all your effort. But the, the post will give you directions on what to do. It's going to walk you through how to do it. And the first one's actually very easy. It's basically just read it. <laughs> read 1 Corinthians. It takes like an hour of your time. I hear we have a day off tomorrow. It takes an hour of that time. It actually recommends to read it out loud. 
I would love to see some videos of that happening. I left the comment section open. So, when you follow the instructions and you do what this thing tells you to do to exegete a book, you can write your notes in that comments and, and share what you've learned. Or any questions that you have, put that in there. Wouldn't it be fun to have a robust discussion just for one month on one book with a few of us? Check it out. ExodusJesus2015WordPress.com We're going to go through 1 Corinthians. What the heck? Try it. Try it. Because here's the thing. I can give you some good things, but if you actually don't go and do it, if you don't exercise, you're going to go home and forget about it. Start today. Today, go to ExodusJesus2015.com or WordPress.com. Post your discoveries in the comments. And uh, yeah, we'll try that out. So I'm uh, I'm actually going to skip to my last part here. My, my hope today is this. My hope today is that you were reminded of some things. So there's maybe some things that you already knew. Hope, I'm hoping today this is a start, an a igniter. I'm hoping you do go to the, the blog. I'm hoping you do uh, maybe flex your exegetical muscle. Because I, I hope that the next time you hear a contentious debate like that, or an argument, I want you to feel like you can get engaged. Not run away, not get depressed, not, get, not start to fill with doubt. I want you to know that you can go study the issue yourself. And maybe join in the conversation and maybe grow and have your faith expand because of conversations like that. My hope is that you don't just take what the critics and skeptics say about the Bible as true, but you go look for yourself. You do the work. And... I want to encourage you to keep Christ at the center of all of it. Keep Christ at the center of everything you do. Everything, as you study the word, you find it all points to Christ. The most important thing. I love this church because I know we'll do the work. I know there are people here who do the work day in, day out already. They're leading, they're leading studies here. They're leading classes. They're trying to find ways to teach this because they, they, they've seen the power of the word. And they've seen the power of exegesis. And they've seen the power and the, and the joy of doing the work. I want to invite you, if you've never done it, to join, join in that work. Let's pray. If the, if the ushers come forward, the worship team come forward now, we'll, we'll come to the close of our service. <clears throat> God, I'm so encouraged. Lord, I hear criticisms a lot about your word in mass media, in social media, in it's just nasty sometimes. But I love the opportunity that creates for us. Lord, I know when I do the work, when I actually go study the thing that's challenged, when I pull out these tools you've given us, I love just being blown away by how amazing you are and how amazing your word is. And God, many of us need to learn how to move beyond maybe sermon podcasts and actually get out a book and read and get out a text and read and study and learn. Lord, bring that back to me, Lord. You know I need that as well. I rely on so many things that, that, are, that kind of handicap me, Lord. But Lord, thank you that you, you're always available to us, ready to teach us more. Thank you for putting people around us in this church 
who've done very deep study and are passionate about teaching that to others. Lord, help us as a church to continually move forward into discovering who you are and what your word says. Lord, I, my heart today is for the person in this room who is filled with doubt because I've been there and my heart breaks for that. God, I pray that your truth would come roaring in. That as that individual takes steps forward towards you, you would run to them and reveal your truth to them, your rich, glorious truth. God, we continue our time of worship by giving back our resources to you now through our tithes and our offerings. Lord, we thank you for this country and for the cost that was paid so we could have this freedom while the rest of the world is really struggling, Lord, we, we enjoy such incredible peace. And God, we do lift up our brothers and sisters around the world who are not experiencing that peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us a light. Thank you for who you are. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.